and welcome to another episode of Jyoti Maiwan Podcast. It's a beautiful Saturday morning and I hope you're all enjoying the start of your weekend. Today, we're going to delve into the topic of marriage and the use of drugs to enhance love. That's right, drugs to enhance love. As someone who works in the world of pharma and uh, drug research and development, I find this topic incredibly fascinating. Is it possible to chemically enhance love? Can drugs help to maintain and strengthen or even save marriages? You might think I'm crazy, but hear me out. Let's explore these questions together and see what insights we can uncover. So grab a cup of coffee or tea, sit back, and let's dive into the complexities of marriage and the tension between human nature, values, and modern life. I can tell you from experience, it ain't easy. I've been married for a long time, happily, and I can tell you a few key things. First of all, don't forget to um, buy your spouse flowers now and then, and uh, don't forget to buy yourself flowers too, you know, to show your appreciation and uh, to pat yourself on the back as an encouragement. You know, you're doing okay. And uh, don't forget to say, I love you. Uh, every uh, once in a while, you know, just to uh, keep the spark alive. And if it's not working out, just remember the words of a wise man who said, life is too short to be married to the wrong person. So just keep that in mind. Jokes aside, uh, what is marriage really? I think it's the great equalizer, the tie that binds, the institution that makes people wonder if they're better off being single for the rest of their lives. It's a mixed-up institution, isn't it? On one hand, we have the lifelong monogamous relationship ideal to which uh, many of us still aspire. But on the other hand, more than half of marriages fall apart, sometimes after just a few weeks. Quite a tragedy, isn't it? Then there's divorce. Divorce can be traumatic for everyone involved. Of those marriages that do last, only a fraction can be described as, quote, happy. Maybe none at all reach the heights of uh, matrimonial bliss uh, we read about in fairy tales. But wait a minute, is it all just a fairy tale? All right, let's talk about how we got here for a moment. Obviously, there are many reasons why marriages are so fragile. But let's focus on one type of explanation. It flows from an uncomfortable tension between three major factors. The first factor is the human factor, human nature. You know, those drives and other deep facts about our biological and psychological makeup uh, that were forged into us over thousands of generations uh, by the fires of evolution. Things like our powerful urge to have sex, and um, not always with our spouse. Uh, Our relatively short-term ability to pair bond, and the fading of passionate love after the early stages of a relationship, sadly enough. The second factor is values. These include social and ethical values, or ideals, that touch on love and marriage. Think of the rule that we should only have sex with our spouse, 
and the notion that the mysterious power of love should keep our relationships running for decades, long after our children have left the house. Now, see where this is going? Our psychologies and sexual natures, designed by the blind hand of natural selection, often disagree with our moral values, values that are shaped by our relatively recently developed conscious concerns about human flourishing, well-being, justice, and so on. And when they disagree, it is often the values that give in under pressure. And finally, the third factor, modern environment, the various background conditions of contemporary life. It's a very different world from the one in which we evolved, obviously. In this modern world of ours, it can of course make sense to push the purely gene-driven motives like reproductive success to the backseat in pursuit of higher goals. But doing so is no easy task. Alright, it's time to dive deep into the battlefield of biological urges and societal expectations. We'll take a closer look at the three factors I mentioned earlier. So. Get ready. All right, let's start with our biological and psychological nature. You see, our biological story tells us that we humans didn't evolve to be monogamous, and uh, studies actually support this controversial claim. Our ancestors formed pair bonds, yes, but they also had sex outside of their primary relationships. This is not at all surprising. You see, only about 30% of primate species are socially monogamous. The rest are all polygamous. Now, historically speaking, it's mostly the males who benefited from this, uh, since they could increase their output of healthy babies, you see, spreading their sperms around and maximizing the number of offsprings. However, females also increase their offspring by mating with fitter males. Now, this architecture of our ancestors has been inherited by us, you and I, dear listener, which means we have a pre-conscious drive to desire commitment, but we also have an incredible urge to seek sexual opportunities outside that commitment. Okay, let's talk about marriage values, the marriage vows. We promise sexual exclusivity and non-negotiable fidelity. We see adultery as a moral failure. This makes sense because committed marriages lead to better health, happiness, and longer life. The majority of studies show this. Cheating, on the other hand, leads to heartbreak, pain, violence, and divorce. Okay, so what about the modern context? You see, in our modern world, sex has become separate from the one's mandatory goal of reproduction, thanks to birth control technology. For example, condoms also make it easier to avoid sexually transmitted infections. And so our social circles have expanded and long-distance travel has become more accessible. And therefore, opportunities for low-cost love affairs have grown. Now, it's not surprising then uh, that at least one-fifth of husbands and one-tenth of wives commit adultery. The number for American couples are actually even higher, uh, ranging up to 72% for men and uh, around 54% for women, uh, depending on the survey. While marriages can end for a variety of reasons, including the fading of passionate love, adultery contributes significantly to divorce across all human societies. Now, to address this issue, we must acknowledge the tension 
between our biological and psychological nature, our marriage values and the realities of our modern environment. To bridge the gap between the ideal of marriage and the reality of infidelity, we must consider changes in one or more of these dimensions. Wouldn't you agree? It is absolutely undeniable that the tension between our biological impulses, our values about love and marriage, and the modern environment can cause significant suffering. One potential solution is to change our values about extramarital sex, accepting it as a natural and reducing the emotional impact of cheating. Right? Okay, I can hear you frowning and I understand the objection. You see, historical examples show that this solution may not be that effective as norms around extramarital sex vary across cultures and time. Even if we were to change these norms to allow for open marriages, jealousy, which is also an evolved emotional response, would still cause harm and potentially disrupt families. So in light of this, it may be more beneficial to give up, basically, on the drive for extramarital sex and instead maintain the norm against adultery. While this may be a difficult norm to maintain, at least for some of us, it aligns more closely with our modern values of mutual respect and gender equality. Ultimately, finding a solution to this tension will require making changes in one or more dimensions biological, psychological, or even societal. Now, as we search for ways to reconcile our monogamous values with our unfaithful natures, we're left with just two dimensions to manipulate. The first dimension we discussed is the contextual dimension, the facts about our contemporary environment that makes cheating easier and more likely. So we have seen how things like birth control, long-distance travel, large social groups, and longer lifespans actually have contributed to this problem. While we can't abandon these changes entirely, there are some aspects of modernity, for example, where the benefits are not so clear-cut. For instance, we could make divorces harder to obtain, <laughs> criminalize adultery like they do in Pakistan, or even reduce access to birth control like um, the Taliban. Now, while these measures may reduce divorce rates and extramarital affairs, they might also backfire or be largely ignored since um, heavy-handed regulation of human mating often does not work. After all, people tend to behave in ways consistent with their deepest drives and impulses, regardless of moral ideals or state efforts to deter them. I mean, there was prostitution in the Soviet Union, for God's sakes. You can't just mold people into zombies. It doesn't work. Therefore, we might be forced to live with this mismatch between our values and behavior. We can't simply undo all our moral progress, you see, nor can we yearn for some pre-modern state of nature. Instead, it seems like we must accept where we are and make the best of it. What if we could change our human nature? That's the question that has led to discussions about the potential for chemical enhancement of love and marriage. You see, advances in science and technology suggest that we may soon have the ability to directly intervene in these psychobiological systems that control complex phenomena such as love, lust, and attachment. 
With this research, we may be able to bring our ancient drives in line with modern values and environments. Wouldn't that be great? Maybe we can use this technology to eliminate adultery. What if we could supplement marriage counseling with prescription of love drugs designed to improve commitment and bonding? Now you see, philosophers have obviously already explored the potential for the neurochemical enhancement of love and marriage, arguing for hormone-altering treatments to promote long-term commitment and reduce the risk of infidelity. While these ideas may seem wild and radical, they raise important ethical questions about the limits of human intervention and the potential consequences of tampering with fundamental aspects of our biology. You see, the moral case for love drugs centers around the idea of marital autonomy, where couples should be free to shape their marriage in the way that best suits them, including the use of chemical substances if they are available, and also if they are effective and legal. Love drugs have been used in everyday life, such as drinking wine and using Viagra, right? But oxytocin, for example, is a promising candidate for improving the bond between romantic partners. Now, you see, oxytocin is a hormone that plays a major role in forming the mother-child bond and the powerful feeling of connection between adults who fall in love and it can now be given by nasal spray. However, oxytocin's effect on the brain are still not fully understood and uh, its use raises ethical questions, obviously. While no one should be forced to take oxytocin, it may be a reasonable choice for some couples. Nevertheless, we need to be careful not to promote the use of these drugs for everyone, everywhere, across a wide range of poorly defined conditions. That would be stupid. We just don't have enough data yet, so we need to be patient. When considering the practicalities of using love drugs, there are countless considerations to worry about. However, it is suggested that they should be used as a last resort and uh, not the first option for couples. Uh, obviously couples who are facing problems in their relationships. Just like in the case of, say, chronic depression, doctors should encourage patients to address their mental health issues through non-biochemical means before considering the use of drugs. In the same way, couples should try counseling and other interventions before actually reaching for um, love drugs. However, in some cases, counseling may be insufficient to get a couple over the initial hurdles of their difficulties. And love drugs could give them the boost they need, you see? For example, if a couple is struggling to touch each other, say, oxytocin nasal spray could help to strengthen their bond. Just two sprays and there will be magic and they will be bonding and hugging. Simple as that. Now, it's important to use these drugs or love drugs cautiously and conduct further research into their effectiveness and potential side effects. But in some cases, they might make the difference between a family falling apart or actually staying together. Overall, these kind of drugs are definitely, I think, a possibility well worth exploring. And that's it for today's episode. Remember, folks, Love drugs may be a thing of the future, but until then, don't forget the power of good old-fashioned communication, a little bit of compromise, and of course, a nice bottle of wine, or two, 
just make sure you don't overdo it or you might end up in a whole other kind of therapy session. I hope you enjoyed this discussion on the philosophical and practical aspects of chemical enhancements of relationships. If you have any questions or comments, please don't hesitate to reach out and be sure to tune in next week as we explore another exciting topic that's sure to pique your interest. Until next time, Khodayar Nagadar.